0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Matthew Clark, who's a research associate at SOAS. We'll be talking about a fascinating new publication called Botanical Ecstasies Psychoactive Plant Formulas in India and Beyond. This is a 2021 psychedelic press publication. Uh, all of the details will be in the course notes. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So, so um, botanical ecstasies. Um, what's this book about?
1: Well, it, it really has its. I, I, uh, I was. I studied uh, religion and philosophy in the nineteen seventies. Uh, then I had a long gap when I was in Asia, mostly in India. I came back to the UK in nineteen. 19- 97 uh, and then start and then I went back to SOAS in ninety eight and I started a I was doing an I did an MA at SOAS. Um and uh, during the course of that MA I got to looking at the Vedas, not in any detail, but I realized that SOMA was a big, big issue, uh, the SOM, Somras, this, this, this plant. Um, and I just started collecting notes on on the topic. Um, and um at first um I wasn't really sure what I was uh, looking for um, but because <clears throat> it was evident that um, this this stuff whatever it was had been the subject of a scholarly investigation for about 250 years and all these different theories and I remember when uh, Gordon Wasson published his his uh, seminal uh, song of the divine mushroom with immortality in 68 I read it in the 70s but I'd sort of more or less forgotten about it uh, but I started getting interested in the topic um, Actually, at the time, I was drinking ayahuasca quite regularly, quite legally, I must say, uh, quite regularly. And it struck me during all this that they would, I I, I thought they must be doing something like this. (laughs) It it had the same because you have these groups, uh, these group rituals. uh, There's um, the the chanting, um, the the, the ceremony. um, And also, uh, there's, of course, vomiting with ayahuasca as well. uh, And it's a purgative. And uh, it's used for very similar purposes in South America, as it seemed to be in, from the Vedic material. So that led me on uh, in, into, the, into the idea. And I think a key point, which, re- which happened uh, sometime, I think, in the early 2000s, I was looking at the Pashupata Sutra, and uh, it, there was a line in there that said, when you're making soma or soma, add tips of the kusha grass. Well, I thought, well, that's very peculiar because, you know, this looks like a formula, like adding rather than a single substance. And so on it went. And as time went on, I got more and more uh, certain that they were using something like ayahuasca analogues. And, uh, and then bit by bit, all the gaps started getting filled in. I think the, um, the, the defining point really in, in the whole thing was that up to the uh, previous work on Soma has always assumed it's one plant. Uh, you know, it's or it's one it's one one substance. But if you look in the Materia Medica of India, which I started doing, then you notice that there are about 20 plants are called soma. You know, so um how is or Amrit is the other they are often synonymous, Amrit or soma, And so you get all these plants called soma. Well, how it that's, that was the first uh, sort of major discovery. Um, and then of course, um uh, looking at the Vedas themselves, uh, you get the soma of the mountains, the soma of the rivers, the soma of the meadows, all these different types of soma. In the medical texts as well, I, so Shruti talks about 14 different kinds of soma plant. And so then I realized, actually, it's a multi-plant formula. Uh, it, it's not, not, not just one thing. It's, it's a multi-plant formula. Um, and then uh, uh, sort of in support of that, and I, I, having started looking at it in a lot more detail, um, I I, I noticed that um, <clears throat> uh, when in in the in the South American tradition, which has been explored much more extensively for psychoactive plants because of the living culture in South America, uh, it's been nothing like as explored in in Asia as it has in South America. But in South America, um, they use the combination of the uh, Banisteriopsis carpi vine for the um, <clears throat> what's called the monoamine oxidase inhibitor and they use the chocrona plant which is has the dmt um so uh, just in case re- uh, listeners don't know about this the, the 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 way it works is that if you take a plant source of dimethyltryptamine which is a powerful psychedelic uh it just gets absorbed uh, in the gut and it, there's no effect at all but if you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor at the same time because uh, then that prevents the chemical from the liver breaking down the dmt and you get the 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 dose of the psychedelic substance. But actually there are about 18 plants now known to contain DMT and about another 80 plants known to contain monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And in fact, you can make um, ayahuasca analogs from numerous uh, varieties of plants. Um, And in fact, the first time I drank what was called ayahuasca was actually made from Syrian rue for the MAOI and um, from... uh, the most hostilists, the bark of the most hostilists, which contained the DMT. So that had a full psychedelic experience, but it wasn't the plants used in South America. With this in the background, I then started looking for more clues in the, in the, in the text, the Indian texts, and um, sort of pieced together some, some sort of uh, um, a list of plants they could have been using. So that's, that's really how I arrived at the, at the, at the conclusion.
0: So there's uh, a, a tons uh, of rich material there. Let's maybe take it piece by piece. Yeah. First, the first piece I think um, uh, we might like commentary on is okay. So soma in in the Vedic context, Vedic not sort of in this cultural sense of you know Indic or, or orthodox Indic, but Vedic historically uh, within the Vedic texts and the Vedic religion. You know, what can we discern about Soma from the Vedic texts. Okay, so um, the
1: um, in the Vedic text, well, I suppose in the background of the Vedic text is, is this uh, issue that the um, Avesta, the sacred ch- text of the Zoroastrians, certainly the old part of the Avesta, uh, and the uh, early Vedic material, the Rig Veda, uh, scholars about 100 years ago noticed the commonalities between those uh, sets of texts. So we're talking about some sort of common root, <coughs> When we look at the Vedas, and there's more material in the Avesta uh, that can support this, but when we look in the Vedas, the, um, the two in Vedic ritual, there are about 130, apparently about 136 kinds of Vedic ritual. The most important of the Vedic rituals are the, the Soma rituals. Um, there's two central elements of uh, Vedic religion, has been argued by some scholars, are fire offerings and the drinking of Soma, so it's extremely important. Um, in the ninth, the ninth mandala of the Rig Veda is entirely devoted to uh, Soma hymns, hymns to Soma. It's one of the three most important deities within Vedic religion, alongside Indra and Agni, the god of the fire. So it's extremely important. In the texts themselves, in the Vedas themselves, what you see is that there are descriptions of, these, uh, of the Soma plant or plants as stalks. These are bundles of stalks. There's a deal haggled uh, with the soma seller, who's uh, uh, cast as a very unsavoury character, a bit like a sort of drug dealer. And there's a negotiation um, and he's given a cow or some gold. Anyway, the soma stalks are acquired. Uh, Then these stalks are are put on these planks covered with a reddish cow skin. um, And then they're pounded to get the juice out of the out of the stalks. Um, This is all clear from the text. The juice is extracted. It's mixed with water and then with milk. It's first offered to the deities in the Vedic ritual and then drunk by the the priests. So we have a physical description of bundles of stalks that are crushed uh, with stones in the Vedic tradition in mortar and pestle in one place in the Rigveda, And also in the Zoroastrian tradition, they use mortar and pestle. But it's the same kind of process, pounding stalks, extracting some sort of juice mixed with water and milk and then consumed. The, um, in the text themselves, in the Vedas themselves, um, it talks about this pressed out liquid. The soma is believed by most scholars to derive from the Vedic mutsu, meaning something pressed out. In other words, it doesn't refer to a particular substance or particular plant. It, it can be translated as extracted juice. Um, I would actually go further and say that soma was probably a sort of shortcut or a handy word for psychedelic in general. It's like a psychedelic, psychedelic thing. So juice is is extracted it's bitter it's very very bitter um it's brownish reddish yellowish depending on the concoction um it's drunk at approximately three hourly intervals uh there's a morning pressing sometimes a noon pressing then a uh, sunset sunset pressing so approximately every three hours they press this thing uh they extract the juice they drink this in rituals that last for one day, three days, five days, nine days or more. Long, long rituals conducted by teams of priests. So that's the sort of physical soma, bundles of stalks with the uh, the juice extracted. As for the effects, this is more controversial. Um, There are some scholars, some very good scholars, who believe that uh, there's nothing psychedelic at all about uh, the soma drink. Um, These are scholars who primarily argue for the plant being ephedra, which is a stimulant. Um, uh, I could, we could go into that later but I, I don't accept that argument and they, and they see nothing shamanic or whatever in the in the in the um, descriptions of the effects in the text but there are some pretty interesting verses in the in the texts um, they, there are descriptions of great light of um, shaking interesting of vomiting but it's particularly in the brahmanas you get descriptions of uh, p- people purging after drinking this stuff Um there are there's uh, passages where it's uh, uh, like flying through the air um, and so on. So um, you can't prove that these descriptions, these poetic descriptions by obviously the Kavi, the poets in the text, are of a psychedelic experience. But it looks like it. It looks like it to me. Um, the so the it's very important this soma ritual. The priests used to drink it at at the, at the rituals, uh, but participants, the Yajamana, whoever it is, might might only participate once in a lifetime. It was a very expensive thing to do, requiring a huge amount of donations to the Brahmins. So that's what, that's what we can get from the Vedic texts. The, this. If we include information from the Avesta, it's very similar in many ways. Bundles of storks in there collected by the women. Um, it's sometimes described as an ordeal. Uh, and um, again, very similar to sort of uh, ayahuasca kinds of uh, reports. So... Yeah, this, this, is the sort of, this is what we learn from the texts about, about the substance.
0: You know, I find this endlessly fascinating for a variety of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I find so much research that we cover on the podcast uh, quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, um, my particular expertise is in the Puranas, mm-hmm. particularly the Devi Mahatmya and the epics. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 um but uh, nevertheless, um, just sort of from a, an armchair or a generalist approach, it, it seems clear to me, of course, uh, I'm not a specialist, I'm speaking as just someone who has some training in Hindu studies in general. It seems clear to me from looking at the text that there was a an altered experience involved, whether we want to describe that experience as religious or psychedelic, yeah. uh, but clear, it's, it, it, yeah. it's it's clear to me that even the, even the, the symbology of um, Agni and Soma, Agni, fiery, masculine, rational, and, and Soma, watery, feminine, you know, it's sort of transrational or, or altered states. I mean, the, the symbology seems clear that Soma represents yep. something otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, was asked, uh, I was asked by a, a platform called uh, Chakruna to do a piece on soma just uh, reflecting on on what soma might be or and i I did sort of an analysis through the lens of indian myth of you know ways in which we can make sense of what soma is so it's fascinating and the other piece that i'll share um i typically don't speak about this on the podcast because we talk about scholarship but i do a fair bit of life coaching work life coaching for lack of a better word really technically these days it's called spiritual counsel. so spiritually infused life coaching Mm -hmm. you can say uh, people come with a variety of issues and there've been uh, um, 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 more than one. There've been a few people who have come having had um, uh, intense spiritual experiences doing ayahuasca and what they wanted our council to focus on was integrating and making sense and processing the otherworld experiences that they had and, and were it not for uh, those clients and also the very sensible, earnest spiritual adepts who choose to do ayahuasca for, you know, their own personal spiritual reasons. Um, I haven't done ayahuasca myself, but were it not for these experiences with these clients, um, um, I would not, um, uh, you know, it would be uncomfortable for me to equate psychedelic experiences with religious experiences, but it was abundantly clear speaking to these people that they were having altered states that people can have without psychedelics, if they're adepts right like much of what they were describing i've heard uh before yeah (laughs) um and i was utterly fascinated and so that's not an object of research for me but just to say that it's 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 clear to me that ayahuasca opens the doorway for spiritual experiences to some who are ready in the right context and i i personally don't see it as a huge leap to consider um you know uh the ancient vedic uh priests as some kind of psychonauts in this regard as well mm-hmm. um and could you say a bit more about why you feel that's such an uh, untenable or problematic position to most
1: um well it's um a novelty for us to, to think of these kinds of uh plant-based experiences as significant in the ancient world um but i think they were um um the humans um have always uh, researched uh, or or investigated um plants uh, particularly for non altered states of consciousness um i really like the well the work of ronald Siegel. Uh, he wrote that book called intoxication published in 1986 and he spent his most of his uh, career looking at the, the way animals plants birds uh sorry animals uh Insects, birds, all these creatures actually naturally intoxicate themselves. It's something that creatures do. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's part, and he, he, he argues that what you might call intoxication, a very sort of loaded word, is actually a, a biological drive in humans. And so um, I believe that over time, by accident, and who knows how they discovered ayahuasca in South America, but similarly in ancient Asia, at some point they, they, they actually ingested plants that produced this non-ordinary state of consciousness, and it developed into, a, into a, a religious cult because of the veneration for these uh, experiences and for the plants. And uh, my speculation, this is really a speculation, is that um, this may have been, lie, may lie in the background to the development of yoga and these kinds of practices in India. In other words, techniques for entering into non ordinary state, particularly through breathing exercises, pranayama, without the use of plants. Um, when Stanislav Grof was prevented from his LSD research or administering LSD in the 1972, he developed holotropic breathing in order to induce these non-ordinary states of consciousness without the use of the plants um, or without the use of LSD in that case. But and I think a very similar process might have happened in India uh, of the development of these, of these um, exp- to, to enter these, into, these experiences using, using techniques, yogic techniques, rather than the plants but I believe the, the impetus was the, the experience induced by the plants uh, in, in the ancient world. Who knows how, how long ago, but uh, yeah, certainly in the Vedas, in the early Vedas, they, they, they seem to be um, fully, the cult is fully developed, if you like. I think another point about this is that um, we're talking about a very, very small number of people involved in all this. I think often we are picture of the uh, ancient world in India is, can be distorted because of our, our dependence on texts. But of course, I did a little bit of research into this. I, I think the Brahmins currently constitute about four percent of India's population, and historically, probably about the same. Now, it's been estimated by other scholars who've looked into this that maybe in the in the first migrations from Central Asia, one or two thousand people migrated, you know, and settled in the Punjab region. We're talking about a very very small number of people, uh, but we do, uh, but the the interesting thing is that we have a window onto their world through the, the texts written by the Brahmins or composed by the Brahmins subsequently written. So we have a window onto that world. We don't know what was going on in the rest of India at all. The Brahmins had no interest in anything outside their world. But um, I think that a small, within the Brahmin world, yeah, which is very, very small in the ancient world, there was this, was this initiatory cult. You got initiated into this into this cult. Uh, through through your family, through your father, and so on, and then there was a, an would be an equivalent of an ayahuasca ritual introducing you to the uh, non ordinary states of consciousness. So
0: yeah. yeah, lots of lots of fascinating points there. The the, the one important point I think. Uh, worth sort of um, grokking is um, when we're studying tradition and I see this all the time mm. you know I'll tell a story I tell, I'll tell a purana that's sort of etched into my DNA mm. and folks will want a textual reference mm. and uh, I have to think if I have textual reference I probably do somewhere that's different when I'm doing scholarship and I'm relying on texts, but folks will always want uh, some sort of parchment version of lived religion and it's yeah. it's our it's our instinct as as scholars even when we're not textual scholars what do we do we study we study scholarship we study secondary literature right even as ethnographers um and and it's sort of the bias of our particular culture and uh and 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 i think it's important to remember that the these the texts that we have are teeny tiny peepholes into a vast world
1: that's right that's right yes, yes. it's
0: it's it's abundantly clear to me that even within the Vedic Brahmanical world, there was so much lore that wasn't written down yeah. because they they weren't important enough. They were lore that everyone knew, and probably probably uh, you know um, as they roasted uh, who knows what around the, around the Vedic fires mm-hmm. that they were telling each other. It's it's clear to me that there, there was a, a vast um, um, a, a vast array of lore, but it wasn't properly liturgical so it wasn't yeah. written into the vedic hymns or it wasn't uh you know a source of inspiration for the hymns and that's there's so much more in the vedic world that we don't have in the hymns and then imagine what else was going on and i think this is why um hinduism for lack of a better word is so syncretic yeah. because yeah. brahmanism has this this, this 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 sort of dual penchant of A, preserving orthodoxy, but B, expanding it. So all of a sudden, you know, the text I studied is a Devi Mahatmya. Nothing in me thinks that people woke up, five you know, 15 centuries ago and said, let's worship a, a great goddess. Mm-hmm. This probably has been going on yeah, from the exactly. Vedic ritual, yeah, but yeah. at some point it gets folded into the Brahmanic um, um, uh, gaze. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really... A uh, fascinating point to raise that we have, we have a, a tiny peephole into this this foundational uh, strata of society, uh, Vedic society. And uh, what do we have? We have these hymns. Uh, the texts obviously aren't manuals. The, the Vedic hymns aren't manuals on how to use the hymns. You know, so who knows what they were doing? Who knows what kinds of experiences they were having? So, I, um, in the book, in the publication, could you take us through the structure of the publication?
1: Well, the, 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 my first book on this topic was the Tawny one, which was, um, I've got a copy here, which was this is a much bigger book. Uh, here, this is the Tawny one. That was first published in 2017, and it's, it, it covers a lot more material than in botanical ecstasies which is the main argument all slimmed down. It's like as compact as possible. But in, the, um, in this book, I cover also, there are two chapters on the Greek mystery rites, uh, and I believe the same thing was going on in, in Greece, but that's a whole other discussion. And I have a whole chapter on, on the cocaeon and what that might have been. And then I look also a bit more in detail at some of the candidates that have been proposed. In the, in, in botanical ecstasies, what I'm doing is really I, I left out all the Greek uh, stuff because uh, that's a sort of separate branch and also the detailed descriptions of some of the um, or the detailed analysis of some of the other, other, other botanical suggestions. So in the botanical ecstasies, what I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm <clears throat> describing the, basically the, uh, eliminating the discussion of the other candidates, describing how it's a multi-plant formula. Uh, this is, this, I think this is an important point. Um, I'm, I make the also the comparison with, um, if we look in Ayurvedic texts, particularly in the, the canonical texts, the Sushrut and Charaka, we look in those texts, if we look at the, uh, what medical treatments comprise, In practically every case, these are multi-plant formulas, 10, 15, 20, 30 plants uh, for any particular formula, whether it's earache or toothache or whatever it is. Also, interestingly, in um, folk medicinal traditions, whether it's in Asia or Africa or South America, we have a very similar situation. It's very rare that the brujo or the doctor, whoever it is, gives you one plant. It might be, but very often it's a multi-plant formula. And I think the way that uh, arose is because okay if this works and somebody says oh well this works as well and somebody says this works you know so these these plants get added and I think also within the with the um, these multi plant formulas there's a synergistic effect so that one plant on its own might be weak another plant on its own might be weak and say so se- several of them but combined they have quite a potent effect so I make I discuss quite a bit the, the multi plant formula aspect of that um, there's a, another um, <clears throat> There, there's a very, very quick look at a, a, a tantra because I think that's a whole area to be explored. It's looking for multi-plant formulas in the tantras, which has never been done. Part of the problem, of course, uh, uh, and I encountered this all the way through, is the um, botanical identity of plants. I mean, absolute um, minefield <laughs> looking at texts because we have um, some of these plants. I mean, there's, I cite one uh, from uh, uh, one example. I mean, I think there's a tree called, called the plant called Karanja has about 70 different meanings in Sanskrit, you know, it's, it's just so we're talking about, you know, one reference, you know, what this thing is. And then, of course, uh, the, the, the there's the b- b- vernacular languages, um, translations and also the changing botanical uh, classifications of plants, even in modern times. So what plant are we actually talking about? So these were these were problems. Um, so this, uh, on the Tantra, I didn't go into all that, but I'm just making the case in one of the final chapters that there, it was pro- there's probably a lot to find out in the Tantras about multi-plant formulas. And a, a, a kind of cherry on the uh, cake at the end was um, a chance meeting with Ian Baker, uh, who's a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. And um, he, he kindly forwarded me a, a draft of an article he wrote uh which has not yet been published, um, he discovered a living soma cult in Bengal, in Tarapit, where it's uh, all actually still going on. Yeah, so that's more or less the book, I would say it deals with a a variety of of topics, but as they've got the the, the multi-plant formulas, I think is an important aspect of it, the Ayurvedic uh, comparisons, and uh, also the fact that, um, yeah, it's actually a living cult in India today.
0: I don't think it's a stretch to think of Soma as a brew, uh, not just a plant. So the the way in which we think, uh, you know, ayahuasca is a plant, ayahuasca is also uh, the the brew or um, the way, you know, um, the way uh, uh, beer, beer, you know, do you want beer? You know, that could be one of a thousand different actual items or maybe a, a more sattvic and apropos example, dal. Yeah, yeah, Like you have a specific kind of doll that you're referring to yeah. in terms of species, but then you're referring to a, a dish that could comprise of a variety of, yeah. of yeah. substances. So I think, I think that that there's, sort of one, works.
1: There's one very um, uh, useful article that I came across by uh, Leonti and Kazuto, uh, Italian um, researchers. Um, they in fact alerted me to this, even though this was quite late in the research, I came across their article which just confirmed what I was saying, but, um, India's earliest preserved medical text is the Bauer manuscript from Kashmir in the 6th century and in that in that text there are one, there are two formulas for Amrit, Amrit Prasha or Amrit Food and Amrit Ghee and be- between those two formulas there are, are around 100, 100 plants are listed uh, 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 that, that comprise these, these formulas, so uh, yeah, uh, multiple plant formulas many of the plants in those uh, in the, in the Bauer manuscript are not identifiable but there are quite a few of them which are psychoactive so uh, it gives you the clue that that's what they're up to
0: yeah just for my own selfish purposes if you're aware do you have um, do you have any sense of when soma soma in the Vedic context becomes associated with soma the moon Chandra
1: yeah um, it's uh, it the early Vedic references in the Rig Veda, this is all in, actually, if you're interested in the Tawny one, there's a whole section on that, and uh, there's a big footnote on that. Um, the early Vedic references so is primarily identified with the sun, and in the later Vedic period, it becomes identified with the moon. Um, who knows why, <laughs> but uh, but it is, yeah. So that that's a, there is a transition in the late Vedic period from sun to moon, yeah.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what drives your particular interest in this project is it was it uh you know an intellectual curiosity was it your own experiences like you know what what's you know what what motivates you to research this
1: uh, it was actually more or less by chance uh the whole thing developing because uh i mean i did my phd on sin, on the sannyasis and uh uh and I, but I, I felt um after i published the book on the sannyasis and then quite a few articles and then I felt I'd sort of done it. Um, You know, (laughs) there was virtually nothing more to find out. Um, And I've always been interested in lots of different things. And this summer project, I wasn't even actually intending to uh, write it up. I I mentioned I was just keeping notes on the thing uh, and and working towards that idea of ayahuasca analogues. And then uh, I was at a talk in London and a a friend of mine, he said, oh, he said, "Um, you 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 should write about this. It's very interesting. Uh, anyway there was a conference coming up about eight months later so I thought well I'll just write a little paper you know just for the conference um but having done that then it sort of took it on a life of its own and it just kind of kept going and going and going and um uh, it's a bit a bit of my ca- I suppose it's part of my character but um I, I just wanted to get to the bottom of it and so I just in the end I read everything that has ever been as far as I know everything that's ever been published on SOMA you know so um uh, I, I yeah, it's about 800 publications and I, I just sort of went through the lot to see what anybody had made in any language what they'd made of this topic and then uh, having having got to that point I realized well I ought to expand on this s- small conference paper and uh, and it, it turned into a book yeah um, it, it's a lot more it, it's it's, it's never-ending because there's a lot still a lot of a lot of things to discover but um uh yeah I I I, I think that it's I think that the, the multi plant. I think the multi plant formula is irrefutable. If you look at the, uh, say the materia medica references in the later, and also there's a, a, a quote I put in the book from Fritz Stahl when he was looking at the, uh, who's a very great scholar, you know, but when he was looking at the Avesta, he said he could not understand why there were many Homers. What does he mean, by many, many Homers? You know. Um, so I think it's that's irrefutable multi plant formula. Um, the contentious bit really is whether it was. Uh, psychedelic or not or just some kind of stimulant but as we were saying earlier i mean it looks to me from the evidence like it was a, a kind of entheogenic psychedelic experience that people were were, were, were having well, yeah so uh,
0: uh, you know hmm. well i, I suppose i suppose one could take a st- i mean uh, like for example uh, yeah, starbucks coffee yeah. whatever the coffee is local for anyone i suppose you know uh, i'll uh, one could take a stimulant all day long, but it doesn't seem likely that you'd be taking a, a massive stimulant around dusk. You know.
1: Well, the the thing, the main argument against stimulants, particularly ephedra, is that I mean, first of all, ephedra is a, a, a common plant. Uh, it's used medicinally in many countries. It's ma huang in in China. Nobody reveres that plant. You know. I mean, it's it's uh The other thing about stimulants is that. <laughs> Um, if you take, I mean, it's a bit like drinking espresso coffee, you know, you have one great,
0: maybe you have two, but that's, that's my point about Starbucks at, yeah, at, at yeah, the Yeah, exactly. time. You
1: know, I mean, you don't want, you just, it's extremely unpleasant to drink more. Um, and the idea of drinking, um, like super strong coffee, you know, every, whatever it's hour, you know, for several days at a time. The other thing is that it's quite clear from the, it seems to me quite clear from the Vedic texts, Vedic material, that. When, when these people are talking about their experience, whatever it was, they're talking about it with great reverence. And also there's this death rebirth experience, which is a trope of, 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 of the Soma ritual. After the ritual, the, the participant, the main Yajamana, he goes and has a sacred bath. And during the, the ritual, he becomes like a baby with his f- f- fists clenched, you know, and there is this death rebirth scenario. Um, so of course it could be poetic imagination. <laughs> But much more straightforwardly, it was an actual experience, and they are describing a, a classic kind of psychedelic experience rather than just an imaginary, um, imaginary thing. And, and also, if you take a lot of stimulants, you're going to have a, a hangover afterwards. Um, whereas the, after after the soma, they're all reborn; uh, they, they have this death rebirth uh, experience. So. I think there are two arguments against the stimulant. Yeah, firstly, sustained use, uh, and uh, secondly, this this um, hangover. Was and thirdly, of course, the lack of reverence for anything like ephedra in in any culture.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this in passing. Uh, what do we know, if anything, about uh, current use of soma?
1: Well, um, in India, I thought I thought it had disappeared completely in India. The um, first clue. Um, when I was at the there was, I was at a conference in 2015, and I got talking to one of the presenters who was, um, he's uh, an expert in Persian and Arabic. Uh, uh, he's also a fully initiated Sufi and also very experienced with ayahuasca. And he was telling me uh, that um, he was invited by Kalandar Sufis. And that was very interesting because I've actually written on Kalandar Sufis myself, the most wild of those uh, sadhus, if you like. And he was invited to a ritual in northern Iran, not far from the area I speculate, which the cult where the cult originated. And um, it was a full-on psychedelic ayahuasca experience. Um, he couldn't find out much because um, he, before he participated in the ceremony, he was um, sworn to secrecy, uh, so he wasn't allowed to talk about, you know, much, much, you know, many of the details. But. For me that was a very exciting moment we, we we ended up going out to dinner and of course talking half half the night about this thing because it was so interesting to meet somebody who participated in an ayahuasca ritual in northern iran in recent times um so that was the first clue that i was actually that, that for me when talking to him i then became absolutely certain uh, that uh, even though it's anecdotal it's one person but um, i believe his account because of his experience and his his expertise so that was the first thing that confirmed it, that it's actually going on these days. And the second, as I mentioned, was this this cult in northern Bengal, uh, where they, they also drink Soma. They manufacture Soma and make it. Now, those are living cults, but there's a big gap between, say, the Bauer manuscript, sixth century, and the more modern uh, period. In, even in the Brahmanas, there's a there's a, a there are whole lists a long lists of substitute plants. I'm not sure whether they're substitute or alternative. Actually, that's an interesting thing. How you translate that, it's, you know, whether it's substitute or alternative, what that actually means. But um, Brahmins have known in India for centuries that they are actually using substitute plants. Um, contemporary soma rituals, for example, conducted in Kerala or in uh, Maharashtra, uh, they use mostly. This vine called Sarcostema brevistigma, which is a vine, which they go out and they cut it. It's like stalks again. They do all the processes of pounding it, making the preparation, drinking it, but nothing happens. They just do the whole ritual, but nothing happens, you know, psychoactively. And they know they're using substitutes, but they don't know what the original was. So sometime, maybe around a thousand years ago, um, mainstream knowledge of plant formulas disappeared um from mainstream Brahmanical ritual. Uh, but of course the ritual continued, the Soma rituals continued. They still went through the preparation, but of course nothing happened. So I thought it had disappeared completely and so I was quite um, excited to find out that there are actually there is a living cult of it. So it's still, what's it's,
0: what's your what's your marker for a thousand years ago? Why do you say this disappeared about a thousand years ago?
1: Well only because the Bauer manuscript seems to be referring to a, a living use of that thing in the sixth century. So I'm, I'm adding a few more centuries on there, approximately, uh, when, uh, when, but who knows, it could have been continuing uh, without uh, a break, you know, from very, very early times in these small communities, which we just, as I say, this discovery, uh, this discovery by um, <clears throat> uh, Ian Baker in in. in uh, bengal a few years ago was, was very recent i mean nobody knew i mean nobody's ever published on this or knew about it but of course these these guys in bengal have been they they who no longer who knows how long they've been doing it but their formula has been passed down from father to son through the generations they use an 84 plant formula um he was meant to be going back a couple of years ago to try and find out we, we know about four of the plants they were using but that's all but um, he never got back there because of lockdown and everything else. So it seems to me that um, it could have been persisting in small groups uh, throughout India, perhaps. Um, but mainstream, what you might call mainstream Brahmins, uh, were use, have been using substitutes for a very long time.
0: Yeah. Could you conjecture that that is because uh, perhaps um, uh, um, of the locales uh, proper to the most ancient soma practices had shifted with- yes yes I, I, it, it's a um it's all uh,
1: quite mysterious but as we were talking about earlier um we forget or overlook the fact that in 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 many cultures particularly in south asia i mean knowledge is entirely transmitted orally um and, and these, these things just go on and on you know without anybody knowing about them if- uh, and if there's no text we just don't know
0: if there's um, one thing, yeah. if I could wave a wand, mm. and it was one thing, and there's lots of things sure. that I wish people, uh, uh, sometimes scholars, but um, uh, more students of, of of Indian traditions understood, it's yeah. that um, the, <laughs> um, there are entire traditions preserved to uh dedicated to preserving knowledge which is not written down yes yeah yeah which i know firsthand and so uh, so it's 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 it's, it's, one has to leave room (laughs) in south asia when looking at texts one has to leave that wiggle room in yeah or at least acknowledge that and not not craft an argument based entirely on the textual tradition especially when um, especially when there are living traditions. we yeah. we Again, we have no way of verifying how old orally preserved knowledge goes back that's currently alive, but nevertheless, we can't think that, you know, um, um, uh, oral lineages is a function of modernity. Clearly, knowledge has been, uh, esoteric knowledge has been passed on for, since time immemorial, yeah. one can yeah. surmise. And so really, what do we, you know, Even when uh, studying with teachers who use texts, the texts are a prop. The texts are sort of shorthand for them to expand so much more. That's it. It's not in the text. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, really difficult to convey to most, actually, in my personal experience anyhow.
1: No, I think it's an an interesting parallel there when I was researching for the book is that I I drank uh, ayahuasca quite a number of times with the Santo Daime Church. That's one of those Brazilian... Churches that run ayahuasca rituals. Well, um, one one it's several interesting things. First of all, uh, if you look at Santo Dami rituals, they have many parallels with v- Vedic ritual. That's one thing. But also, if we take the Santo Dami church, the the hymns they use for their rituals. There are about around a thousand of them altogether, collected in different uh, volumes, a bit like the rishis of the Veda. But if you look in the in the collections of the hymns. You get what they call, they refer to the ayahuasca as daimi, you know, give me, I, that's what it's called, daimi. But um, the knowledge of collecting the plants, pressing the plants, extracting the juice, making the thing and all the rest of it, none of that is in their texts. All you see is half a dozen references to daimi in these texts. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's praying, to, uh, hymns to Jesus, hymns to Mary, hymns to all these things, hymns to the sky, hymns to the flowers, and so on and so on. So a bit like with the Vedas, if you came across the text, which the only text of the church, these hymns, you would never have a clue about the background uh, of, the, of the ritual and how they make the stuff and what it does and all the rest of it. So similar parallels
0: there how many delicious recipes do many of us have in our families and these recipes are not written down. No, that's right. It's, yes, yes. It's about know-how you study yeah, yeah. with someone, you teach it to someone. It's know-how Yeah, yeah. because yeah. The, the, when something is written down, one runs the risk of it being taken out of context, misunderstood. Yeah. And also it's not possible to transmit know-how on paper. Otherwise people would just need a driving book and they would get the driver's license. They wouldn't yeah, yeah, need an instructor. Exactly. Yes, they wouldn't yes, need practicum. Good. It's it, 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 and, and and there's the piece there's the piece the, the text is just the prop for experiential knowledge right mm-hmm. um uh, so many threads you you mentioned something in passing so i will i will uh, why, don't, why don't you expand to uh what you view to be analogs in the greco-roman world
1: well um um in the course of uh, looking at soma and all this um one of the things that struck me in fact it's in my book i don't but it's not, it's in the tawny one rather than in the botanical ecstasies. But, um, I looked a bit at the um, eruption of the Santorini volcano in my talks. I always talk about this because I think it's so significant. And I, I got some, some of the, I got the best sort of scientific stuff on that. Now, in one, 1613 BC, plus or minus about 10 years, scientists have absolutely conclusively established that the uh just about 100 100 miles north of Crete in the Mediterranean, the group of islands called Santorini these days, it was Terra in the ancient Greek world, there was this massive eruption. In fact, it was the largest eruption on Earth since the last ice age, between four and 10 times the size of Krakatoa when that erupted in the late 19th century. It was so huge, this uh, volcanic eruption, that the skies went black in China for five years. This is reported in Chinese annals, Mass starvation because all the major crops failed. The tsunami went twice around the world. Seven inches of ash fell, <laughs> fell in South Africa. You know, that, that was, it was the big one. It was a big explosion. Now, um, scholars are well aware that around 1600 BC, there was the collapse of all these Bronze Age civilizations, all the way from uh, the Minoan civilization collapsed in, collapsed in Greece, the upper Oxus collapsed, the Indus Valley culture, which comprised at its height about a million people, suddenly de- collapsed. No invasion, no sign of warfare, just collapse of this culture. Now, scholars know that this happened, uh, that there were these mass migrations and the collapse of these Bronze Age city cultures. But why? So I think it was the eruption of the volcano that caused these migrations. Now, from Central Asia, these people who had the Selma cult started migrating. This is my hypothesis. They started migrating. Uh, some migrated to India, to the Punjab region. That's the sort of uh, background of the Vedas and all that. Some uh, migrated just south into Iran, and we had the Zoroastrian culture. But also in 1600 BC was the founding of Eleusis, uh, the, the great temple about 15 miles uh, from Athens. And this uh, cult of Eleusis is known to have started in 1500 BC. There are various speculations about who founded the temple and where they came from. The best scholarly consensus is that it came from people who arrived from the north, again indicating that sort of area. Now, the uh, Eleusis mysteries, the, the mystery rites, were the template for all the other mystery cults, and I've identified about ten to fifteen of those in other parts of the Greco-Roman world. Um, we know not much about some of these cults, but in the, and, and Eleusis was, but Eleusis was the main one. So. Uh, if you wanted to become a citizen in the ancient Greek world, for example, a citizen of Athens, you had to pass through the mystery rites. That's, that gave you the right to vote. Now, participation in the cult uh, was only, I'd say once in a lifetime experience for the participants at its height, about two or 3,000 people a year were initiated. The ritual went on for a total of nine days. The last either day or two nights they're in, in, the, in the Eleusis temple, they're drinking this bitter, reddish, brownish thing served by the priest in cups. They have visions. They shake. They scream. They shout. And it's the most beautific vision, according to some of the participants you can imagine. So it looks to me as though something was very, very similar was going on in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It was totally secret. If you spoke about the what happened in the mystery rites, it was the death penalty in the Greek world. Uh, there were people actually killed for uh, talking about what went on or even actually arriving in the rituals by accident okay. so it 's totally secret, but there are enough clues in, in in the writings of the classical authors to to indicate that it was a similar kind of experience that they were what they were having I say visions of light trembling shaking shouting, and, and this be- beautific vision now the best scholars of um, the ancient Greek tradition, some of the best ones, they think that there was no, again, similar to the Vedic world, there was nothing, no, there was no drug experience, no nothing going on there. And regarding theories for what the, um, if it was a psychoactive formula they were drinking, the theories so far uh, about it, have, they have been are very limited. There's, um, it's a complicated discussion, but there are some scholars who believe that the cult was based on the use of mushrooms. But the fact is, there's no record anywhere in Greco-Roman literature of picking tens of thousands of mushrooms, which would have been needed to, to serve two or three thousand people, you know, in a ritual. There's no mention of that at all. And the theory that sort of persists is the that uh, the cocaon which is the name of the, 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 the soma in the ancient Greek world, was um, uh, was um, the fungus uh, from. <clears throat> Uh, the, um, uh, the uh, Ergot the Ergot fungus which grows on rye or mostly on rye occasionally on wheat the Ergot fungus and uh, uh, this was first published in 1978 uh, that was Wasson and Karl Ruck and uh, and. Um, Hoffman Road to elusis and in there they uh, uh, speculated that it was the ergot fungus. Now, the problem with the ergot fungus is that it's so toxic. Um, it's it's got about uh, seven or eight uh, significant alkaloids in the fungus, but um, the most, but but it's it's full of toxins. Uh, some of these alkaloids. And this is why you get uh, St. Anthony's Fire and all these kinds of experiences that people have from eating contaminated rye bread in the medieval period. And in, in, up to relatively recent times, 1940, there was an out- outbreak of ergotism in, in uh, France. And uh, a lot of people got very ill and died because of eating this, this bread contaminated with this fungus. Uh, so <clears throat> there have been, there was an attempt by a couple of scholars to explain a, a process whereby the ergot fungus could have been cleaned up uh, through some sort of processes, but I I was very skeptical about that. So we're left in the ancient Greco-Roman world either with mushroom, if either no uh, psychoactive substance, uh, which is uh, like Burkhart and some of these great scholars, they they said there was was nothing psychoactive involved, Um, or we're left with mushrooms, which I think is very dubious, or we're left with um, the ergot fungus, which I think was too toxic and the other thing is that even if you did manage to extract, uh, even if you did manage to clean up the ergot fungus from with these other toxins through various, there's a suggestion of use of ash and potassium, and anyway, but I'm a bit skeptical, but you're still left with lysergic acid amide. Now, that is psychoactive but it's, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> um, it's, oh, it's called ergine. also. You find that in the in morning glory seeds. It's used in South America and Mesoamerica for, for uh, religious purposes. But um, again, I'm skeptical that even, even if you could clean it up, you're left with lysergic acid amide or LSA, which I, I, am skeptical about that. I think the interesting thing is that when we're looking at the possibility of ayahuasca analogs, we're looking at um, the use of DMT and, um, There is something very distinctive about uh, DMT and psilocybin and LSD. Chemically, they're very similar and they have this unique capacity for inducing classical mystical experience. And not some strange kind of thing, which uh, other other psychoactive plants or drugs might do. But it's very distinctive that the mystical experience induced by these by these chemicals. So my hypothesis is that this knowledge of the plants spread not only to India and Persia, but also to Greece. And for between 1600 BC and the end of the fourth century, uh, there was a living cult of, uh, of, of this in, in Greece as well. So, yeah.
0: Fascinating. Uh, was there anything else about the book that you'd like to touch on today?
1: Oh, I think we've touched on a lot. Um, yeah. I think I've covered, we've covered quite a, quite a few Great. different areas in that. Great. Yeah. And one final question, is this research that you're continuing? presently? I, I I've, I've I've come to a kind of conclusion at the moment. Um, One of the things that frustrated my research uh, when I was writing the book was that um, there are a lot of uh, plants that are revered in India that have never been properly tested for psychoactive properties. Now, in particular, uh, for example, the banyan, the people, uh, uh, these, these are very, very holy trees and i interestingly in banyan serotonin has been discovered in bannon in the banyan tree serotonin so we get and, and and i mentioned those tryptamine alkaloids uh in psilocybin and lsd and, uh, and dmt very similar in chemical structure to serotonin who knows whether it means anything or not but um, i also got interested in kush grass darba grass which uh it's prescribed, as you know, to excess in in Vedic ritual. Kush Darba is everywhere. You know, the gods sit, sit on it. It's, it's used for everything. It's a very holy thing. Any kind of uh, ritual involving Brahman priests, there's always bundles of Kush grass, this stuff. Now, interestingly, Kush grass or Darba grass, which is very common in India. I picked it in in the park in Delhi. I found it on a beach in Goa. It's everywhere. This, this, this looks like ordinary grass, but it's a relative of Phalaris grass and polaris grass some species that sometimes at some places are high in DMT so another speculation going back to when that earlier uh, remark i made about when you make some, i'd be sure to add tips of the, of kush grass that was in the partial sutra i i was i i, I suspected that um, kush grass uh, could also similar to polaris grass have DMT in it and there were other plants i wanted tested too but my main difficulty was that Um, actually, I approached eight laboratories worldwide during the course of my research for tests. Now, unfortunately, if you run, if you want to run these phytochemical tests in laboratories, it costs a fortune. And I was quoted from one laboratory in London, like £10,000 for a test, which, you know, maybe I need four or five tests. I was way, way beyond me. Um, And the problem was, because I'm an independent, all the laboratories they wanted, if it was a university laboratory, I didn't I will not, I'm not a scientist. I, had, I was on a research program. There was no protocol. So they said, all oh, very, very interesting. Unfortunately, we can't help. So this kept happening over and over again. So um, I, in, I was hoping to have a lot of these plants analysed to make a much stronger case, uh, particularly with people and banyan and these kinds of these trees and various other plants I thought would be very interesting to test. So um, that was uh, uh, slightly disappointing. Uh, but... Um, I decided that it would be just it was just too difficult for me as a, a non-scientist, not in the scientific department, to, to arrange for any of these kinds of tests. It was extremely complicated. Um, even bringing plants from India to England to be tested, of course, it's completely illegal. You're not allowed to bring live plants over borders. I did um, arrange a test of cushgrass right in the very early days uh, in London. But but uh, uh, but the, the, the thing went on for months and months and months and months. Uh, and the thing had completely dried out. <laughs> and then, and then the, the, the professor who was going to do the test said, oh, he actually couldn't do it anymore because he was too busy. So I had a, I had great difficulty testing plants. If the, 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 I think the way to take this thing forward is if somebody who has a scientific license, if you like, uh, to to look at some of these plants to see what's in them, because a lot of them have never been tested for psychoactive
0: chemicals. So. Listen, uh, thank you. Listen, for those of you listening out there, there are scientists among you, without question, perhaps yeah. ones with access to laboratories. Yeah. Um, um, uh, perhaps there are members of the public who might even contact uh, Dr. Clark to start a GoFundMe, but clearly, without question, there'll be. Um, they would be interested in these findings, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, perhaps some of the listeners of this podcast or people they know might get in touch with you, and you never know. Uh, yeah. This podcast may actually open the door uh, for 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 you for your analysis of pusher graphs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank Great. you for appearing on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Great. Thank you.
0: For those of you listening, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Matthew clark um, SOAS on a fascinating uh, piece of uh, research on SOMA uh, called Botanical Ecstasies, Psychoactive Plant Formulas in India and Beyond. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, uh, and keep contemplating the power of SOMA. Take care.